Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel. Can you say Bezalel? We could just kind of get some fun out of this, right? Um, the son of Uri, try Uri. The son of Hur. That was pretty easy, yeah? The son from the tribe of Judah. Come on now, there's more than four of you. Judah means praise. I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Um, and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels and in setting and carving wood, and the work of all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, this is God speaking, have appointed with him a chaliab. Would you say a chaliab? The son of, and here's a really one, Ahisamach. Oh, that was nice. You guys, look at you. It sounds so Hebrew. Um, from the tribe of Dan. Yeah, you did really well with that. Dan. Nice job, Peter. I've put, in the, I've put wisdom in their hearts and all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its, all, and its utensils, pure gold lampstand, all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments of Arun, the priest, and the, the garments of his sons to minister as priests, and the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Shabbats you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Shabbat, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. So you won't break the Sabbath twice. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but on the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Shabbat and observe the Shabbat throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And you might say, what? And I'd say, "Mm mm-hmm. And when he made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written, finger of God. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to open up your word and expect you to speak. Profoundly minister. Radically take us over. God, I pray that you would speak to every one of us individually today where we need to hear you as well as corporately right where we as a body need to hear. I pray that you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit, that I would disappear, that you would fill me to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, that you would use me as your vessel to administer salvation, encouragement, grace, strengthening, hope, challenge, rebuke, whatever it is, but that each of us would be more thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, that we would be so rolled over and captivated by you today. God, I pray that your word would burst open and come alive and that we would have so much fun in it now. God, that you would open our minds, that we would be able to grasp what we could never have grasped before. And that today would be a day, Lord, that we say, wow, what an awesome God. And so, Lord, please, may we interface with you and encounter you in a very real and practical way now, I pray. Have your way. Redeem every second, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, as I would any, please just don't believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Now, it's been quite a while since chapter 24. In chapter 24, after a three-month journey leaving Egypt in chapter 12, we've made our way now to Mount Sinai. And as we've made our way to Mount Sinai, Moses has gone up and down the mountain four times. Well, this is the fourth time he's up now. And on that time, God has already given the law. That's in chapter 20. He's given some of the social laws, the practical laws that he's given them from roughly 21 through 24. And then in that time, 
now he says, set yourself apart, tell the people to get themselves ready, because I've got something really special for you. And that's kind of the idea here. And I love it when God kind of rolls up his sleeves and he starts going like this. And, and with that, Moses heads up. And he heads up, and, the, and the, there's a cloud that descends upon the mountain. It's big, it's lambastic, and as you might imagine, this is a bit of a freaky thing. And then Moses enters into the cloud, and we don't see him for 40 days. And those 40 days and 40 nights, he doesn't eat. Apparently, he doesn't need to. God is all he needs. And those 40 days, God sits down with him, and he starts to talk to him, like a man perhaps would speak to a friend. And he says, now... This I've been waiting for. Loose paraphrase, but again, don't just believe me. Search the scriptures and let the Bible have the final say. And he says, listen, this is what I've been waiting for since Eden. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among my people. That's the point here. God wants to dwell among you. That's the point. Now, with that said, it is not going to happen without the shedding of blood. It's not going to happen without sacrifice. And it's imperative to recognize, to approach a living God, you are going to have to approach Him with the perfection of your sacrifice, never the perfection of your own performance. Never forget that. Because that is a, that is a precedent that God has set up from the very beginning. When you stand before God, the day that you stand before Him, you will not be able to pick your own perfection here. And once you've blown it, you've blown it. But you have the ability to pick your sacrifice. And just like the Kohen Gadol, the high priest would stand and look at your sacrifice and still observe it. It couldn't be the mangled thing. I mean, the thing that was ready to die anyways. Why would you give that to God? God's like, the thing's almost dead. What difference does it make? I want something that you realize is going to cost just something. That's the point here. But it has to be perfect. I don't want to blemish on it. Well, when I stand before God, in the same way, to enjoy eternal fellowship with Him personally and intimately, it will never be about my personal performance or perfection. It will be about the perfection of my sacrifice. And I can pick my good works, and some people are going to. Oh, that's all right. I'm a good person. I don't, I don't, well, I, and it's, it's amazing when you're good. What that means is you don't do things. Have you noticed that? You're like, what makes you a good person? Well, I, I don't rape. I'm like, well, that's very comforting. So, could you imagine there's a sign that says, everyone gets into heaven except rapists? That's not exactly it. I'm like, so if I punched you in the face, is that okay? Why? Well, if I didn't rape you either, I just punched you in the face. That's not bad, is it? And here's the whole point of it. When you start actually start kind of defining your own goodness, it's just not perfect. Because well, let's just take a look at your motives. Let's just take a look at your performance. But please hear me on this. Nothing is more important to God than your relationship with Him. And if that is the case, then everything you've performed for God is you're saying, God, look at all the things I've done without you. And God says, I'm not impressed by what you do without me because truth be told, you couldn't have even done that. On the other side of it, you can choose Jesus Christ. And in choosing Jesus Christ, how could the Father not look at Him and see perfection? And here I am standing there, and right beside me is the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for my sins and rose again. There is my perfect sacrifice. And God starts laying out these things as he starts laying out the furniture in the tabernacle. And, and where did they go? Can we, um, who, who's on PowerPoint? Is there someone there? Oh, there you are. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Nay. Okay. Can you get to that, that graph, if you would, please, that chart, the comparison? Understand from that point on, then, as he starts to lay each piece of furniture in the tabernacle, each one of them, strangely enough, there are basically seven, and they compare to the, the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And then, you know, I mean, it's like you could say, well, that may sound contrived. Well, you can make that decision for yourself, but it starts so profoundly, I think it's really hard to argue against it. Because from the very beginning of this, he starts with the table of showbread. And with the table of showbread, the first thing is, I am the bread of life. They are in order, by the way. And I'd like you to consider that. So here it is. Table of showbread, bread of life. Next is the lampstand, and it's the light of the world. You tell me. The next is the tent and the door, and he's on the door to the sheep. The next is the altar of sacrifice in the courtyard, and the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And it's strange, because as each one of these things plays out, I kind of get the idea. And Jesus even said this. He says, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. And he tells the religious leaders, You search the Scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life. He says, but these are the ones that testify of me. And there was because if you read the scriptures right, you'd wind up at my doorstep. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Now, we get all the way through them and we start to see, because he moves then from these things that he is to simply things that are going to talk about the life and the life and the vine. Interesting, as he does, now he starts to bring in the priesthood. And the Bible tells us that we ourselves are a chosen generation and a holy priesthood. And as we move to this final one in this text, it just hits such a perfect place. Did you notice at the end of this chapter, Moses is heading down the mountain. This is it. From this is the end of our Mount Sinai experience as we know it here. Because he's on his way down to hear a bunch of people singing to a golden calf. And as that's the case, Moses has been spending 40 days in this beautiful place. And with this now, we get to this last one. Now, Jesus says in the Gospel of John 15, and if you can keep your finger where you're at in your Bible, flip there, so let's look at it for just a second to try to develop, and then we'll get into our text here. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15. And here's the most ironic thing about this. Is that Jesus has just told His disciples He's leaving. In chapter 14, He's made very clear, actually even down to 12, starting in chapter 12, He's really come right out with it in John, that He's going to be sacrificed. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. He'll be spat upon. He'll be beat. He'll be mocked. He'll be crucified. And on the third day, He'll rise again. And He's been preparing them now for that handoff. Chapter 13 begins the Passover celebration as Jesus then bows down and and washes His disciples' feet. Chapters 14 through 16 or 17 really are a walkthrough, kind of like, I'm about to like not be near you the same way as you knew me before, so let me make sure you guys have some things clear. The clearest teaching on the Holy Spirit you'll ever find in chapters 14 through 16 of the Gospel of John. Beautiful teaching on. And what you realize is when you learn what Jesus teaches on the Holy Spirit, he, He becomes a lot less freaky and weird. Just wonderful. I mean, I'd hate for us to rob ourselves of a third of God. Well, now follow me in this. As this is the case, imagine Jesus says, Hey, I'm about to leave. I'm not going to be with you, but don't worry. You'll see me again. And then he says, But you've got to cling to me. Now, is that weird to you? Because that's a little strange to me. I'm not too sure how you can leave. And I'm not going to follow you. I can't go yet, but said, yet I have to cling to you. But he makes clear that that's going to be in regards to holding on to, embracing what he said. Now look at what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. And the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And then he says, you're already clean because of the word in which I have spoken to you. So let's demonstrate a little bit of this. Monsieur, mon frère, ici s'il vous plaît. Merci. Lo and behold, here is our tree. Now, it's a lovely tree. This is a French tree, French lilac. Now, as the one who has planted this particular tree looks at the tree, and actually it better be something that bears fruit. That would be smarter yet. What's your, what's your favorite fruit? Apple. apple. It's an apple tree, of course. Well, that's right. How about that? Palm. So, it's a palm tree. Palm tree. Okay, so on that, the, the man who has planted at the orchard only looks at this tree and he, and he starts to observe the tree. He recognizes some branches have nothing. They're bearing nothing on it, just a dead branch. Interesting, a dead branch still sucks from the source. So he cuts those off. Now, could you imagine if you were the tree, how that would feel? Because you're still thinking, that's a part of me. Well, that, it is a part of you. And that's a part, but it's a part of you. Can I just say it simply? It's a part of you that sucks. Because it sucks but gets nothing for it. It's drawing from your life, but you ain't getting nothing out of it. So, or, or anything out of it. Now, now with that in mind, understand, now all of a sudden you feel like, I feel like less of a tree than I was before. What are you doing? I thought you were here to grow me. And he's like, I am here to grow you, but this is just not worth it. And then he looks at, and he looks over here and he sees this one. He goes, well, this is producing some, but this branch over here isn't, and this branch isn't. Another. So he's kind of trimming this off too. He's cutting off that, and he's cutting off that. And you go, hey, 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 this one's doing good. What are you thinking? This is a good area of my life. I mean, there's a hallelujah at the end of this. You know, come on, this part goes to church. He's like, why are you trimming off? He goes, because there's still fruitless things inside that little thing here. Because it's more than just getting lots of fruit, as he says it would bear more fruit, but it's also that the fruit would be sweeter. Now please hear me on this. 
Jesus is talking to people who it isn't like if he started talking about computers. Could you imagine 2,000 years ago? I mean, I don't get computers today. But, but when I look at I mean, and if I got it, here's the, here's the problem is once you understand that, once you understand it, it's like you've, you've understood last year's model, right? You're like, I think I got it. And then like, well, now it's like the iPad 12. Oh, thanks. You know, it's all new. And well, here's the point. Jesus says, you can imagine, here we are, and we're in, by the way, as Jesus is teaching this, we're on our way up the Mount of Olives. So at this point, I would be looking at vines. And I'm looking at vines, and I see the way that he's a vine dresser. And you see branches that are being trimmed and branches are being pulled. And, and as they are, because the idea of it is, is that, that the, the vine keeper knows what he's doing. That's the point of it. And he looks, and he's telling these guys, look at you guys, this is going to happen. But here's the most fundamental part of it. It's not just that the vine dresser is active in trimming your life and you might think that that's punishment when really what it is is kindness. Because there are areas of your life that really, to be honest, they seem cool and they're a part of you, but they really just don't bear fruit. I mean, when God looks at it from the perspective of eternity, it really just doesn't do much. And with that in mind, then, Jesus goes beyond that because, see, the entire part of you could be that if it weren't for one thing. But in verse 3, do you notice it says you're already clean? The term clean here is the term that is used when a vine has been properly dressed. In other words, it takes a look at it. You're cutting off the parts that don't bear fruit. You're trimming the parts that are less fruitful. And you're kind of making sure that this whole thing is done right. When that is completely done right, that thing is called clean. You've cleaned the vine. And Jesus says, let me tell you what did it. My word. Did you get that? You were already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Now, I, there was a time, by the way, I happily, when I was a young Christian, took that verse out of context. I put it up on my shower, and I took a lot less showers because I'd walk in and say, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Anyways, I had less friends then. All right, verse 4. Let's see if you get the key word here. Abide in me as I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so that you will be my disciples. Okay, students of the Word, what word seems to be repeated regularly in that text? You're brilliant. Yes, 11 times in verses 4 to 11, you'll find the word abide. Upamene, to remain underneath. That's the idea of it. Cling to Jesus. And what Jesus says is really simple. Vines by themselves don't squirt out fruit. They have to be attached. And as they're attached to the source, the source is what brings the nourishment for them to bear fruit. Now, follow me in this. Jesus is about to leave them, but he says, you're going to have to stay with me. And as he is in this, he says, I am the true vine. Being attached to me is everything you're going to need. There's one other word he'll add in verse 9 to keep in this. As the Father loved me, so I also loved you. Abide in my love. If anyone keeps my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain. Same word there in the sense, abide in you. And that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love have no man than this, than a man lay down his own life for his friends. You get the idea what the second word is. And here's the point of it. That Jesus in His last I am statement in the Gospel of John with the seven that He makes that the last of them is the necessity to cling to Him because He is the true vine. And here's what He says, I'm the true vine, the Father will be glorified if you bear much fruit, but you can't bear much fruit without clinging to Him. Now, we understand that from a physical sense, and I don't want to develop anything that would be off color, but the idea is, is if you lived alone in a cave, you're not having children. It kind of takes two. And in the same way, the Father says, I really want you to be fruitful, but you can't be fruitful by yourself. Ironic, if you would, imagine this. Peter meets some gal, and her name's Splenka. She's from East Europe. She's a weightlifter, so they met together at the gym. The only girl that he's ever met that can actually lift two vehicles versus his one. And he falls head over heels for Splenka. And Splinka in her community knows that the only thing that really is going to please someone like Peter is to have 17 children. And she hears Peter say the word 17 and she just puts the pieces together. He wants 17 little Splinkas. 
And with that in mind, Splenka goes back to her house and speaks with her mother and says, I believe that Peter wants 17 children. She says, well, all right, you better get busy. She goes, you're right. And she goes and she goes to a seminar on having children. And not only goes on to a seminar, she goes and she visits natal wards and she sees babies getting born. And she looks at them and she thinks, oh, how wonderful. She sees a place where all babies are being born and she goes and she drinks the water. And she's running around and she calls Peter occasionally. Hi, honey, this is Splenka. I'm in Lithuania at a conference. No children are going to happen. Peter's like, I didn't marry you so you could run around the world and not be with me. Ironically, we could be like that as Christians. That we want to give God fruit. And that seems so strange to him. Because he didn't die so you could give him stuff. He died to be with you. Everything else is a product of that. Well, if we're going to start comparing how these things play together and we start looking at these I am statements and we bring them into the tabernacle, I get to this chapter and I say fruitfulness and the necessity to cling and then to love. This thing just makes so much sense. Look at it with me. The first verse is we meet two unique individuals, or do we? It says in verse one. It says, the Lord then spoke to Moses saying, see, I have called by name. I remind you, Moses is up on a mountain hanging out with God. I have called by name Bezalel. And can you say again, Bezalel? And he goes, the son of Uri, the son of Hur. And by the way, you know, the word for son is Ben. So you have Ben-Hur right there. Well, the idea is Bezalel, Ben-Uri, Ben-Hur. And he's of the tribe of Judah. God makes very clear his father, his grandfather, and his, the original tribe member. Are you with me so far? And this is what he says about him. Now, the first thing that's pretty evident is that he's called him by name. Do you see that in verse 2? He says, I've called him by name. I know what his name is, and I've called him. Verse 3, it says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and all manner of workmanship. To design artistic works, to work in silver, bronze, gold, I'm sorry, to gold, silver, and bronze, cutting jewels, setting and carving wood in the works of all manner of workmanship. Now, in our first handful of verses, we meet our first guy. His name is Bezalel. And what we know about him up to this point is that we know his name, his grandpa, his father's grandfather, the original tribe he's from, and also that he's been now filled with these things, with chechmah, which, by the way, is the idea of something that is wise or wit, and that's the idea of wisdom. The second word of understanding is the word tahom, and the word means discretion or reason and knowledge like we would get for cunning la'ad and all manner of workmanship. And then we get to the second character, verses four, uh, sorry, verse 6, it says then, And I, indeed, I have appointed with him Achaliab, the son of Ahasimach, the tribe of Dan, and have put wisdom in the hearts of those gifted artisans for them to make what I have commanded them. Are you with me so far? Go ahead and flash up that other comparison, if you would, May. Now, this is what we're looking at. We're looking at two basic characters. There's our first, and there's our second. Now, perhaps you don't know them, but let me kind of give you an idea. Our first one is the one, Bezalel. That's, what his, that's our first character. Now, this is what we know about him. God says, first of all, that this guy is called. Do you see that here in the verse? Not only do we read that he's called, but we read that God has filled him too. So this guy is called and filled. Did you get that? Now, he's been filled, we read, with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding, knowledge and workmanship. That's where it starts. And it tells us that this is what he's going to do. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. To design, to cut jewels, to carve, and all manner of workmanship. This is your artist. His name, interestingly enough, means shadow, like shadow of God, literally. His father's name means fiery or of great emanation or great light, which is great because his grandpa's name means whitey. And, of course, Judah means praise. Now, follow me on this for a second. There is a character that God has called by name. He's not going, well, one of you wants to step forward. This one he knows by name. And this particular character, this is what he knows about him. He's like, look at, I've already blessed him. And that's the particular verb tense we're looking at here. I've already blessed him. I've been watching him. I've been preparing him. But now I've filled him. I've given him everything that is necessary for him to be artsy. Strange. Because he's going to carve stones. He's going to carve wood. As my daughter would say, he makes things pretty. And I think that's interesting because that's his job. He's the guy who's the visionary. 
what we're going to read about the guy, it's going to be interesting when we actually continue on in this book. Uh, we're going to find that he designs, he does artistic works, he does workmanship, and he's going to have to teach and lead. He is the foreman of the project. Interesting, the foreman of this project to make this whole thing has to be an artist. Strange as it is. Now, interesting, because we're going to get to the second guy, and, we get to the, and then we'll compare him a little bit. The second guy, by the way, we read his name as Achaliav. Can you say Achaliav? Av, like Abba, means father. Achali, though, or Achalas, means tent. Get this. This guy was born with the name My Father's Tent. Now, I don't know how old he is when he's called, but could you imagine his whole life? He's like, why was I named My Father's Tent? I mean, come on, it's like people have names like mighty and valorous and strong. I'm like, tent. Hey, there's tenty. How's it going? Tent. Dad tent. And then one day, that guy is going to go up on a mountain and he's going to come down. Because he's not up there with him, I remind you. Moses is going to have to walk down and he's going to go, Hey, tent. God just gave me some plans to make a tent. And you're supposed to be his man. And I get the idea that God doesn't just call and God doesn't just fill for that calling. Or can I just say, God doesn't just commission and also empower for that mission. But God also prepares for the performance. And this guy, his whole life, he has no idea that he'd been prepared for this. But then I start to think throughout Scripture, that's our whole story. How many times people don't even know what they were doing was preparing them. Case in point, Moses. He's a pretty good example. That poor guy's going to spend 40 years out in the wilderness leading sheep so that he can then spend the rest of his life leading people. The poor guy had to learn Egyptian, and then he's going to be able to go back and speak to Pharaoh without a translator. Think about that, although his brother's going to have to speak with him anyways. David spends the earlier portion of his life, more than likely about 15 years of his life. And do you remember what he was before he was called to be king? He was a shepherd. And you know, remember where he was in the sheep in regards to his role? It says he followed them. And I don't know about you. I'm not exactly Mr. Like, you know, followed, followed the sheep. But I could say that if I had a place to be, it wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be behind them. I mean, I've seen enough parades to know what happens when you walk behind animals. I just tell you the guys at the low end of this, right? But David, as a shepherd boy, went through the area of Judah. And you know what a shepherd boy has to do? He has to know where all the grass is, where all of the caves are, and where all the water is. Because he has to lead the sheep there. Then he gets called to be king, but the old king isn't interested in stepping off the throne. And David will spend the next 15 years of his life running for his life, in the hills of Judah. Have you ever thought about who was most equipped to go to that area? David, because he knew where every cave was. He knew where all the watering holes were. And how would he have known that that was to prepare him for running for his life? And there were times where Saul will run into a cave and he has no idea that David's entire men are hidden in the cave. And I think, how many things has God done to prepare people? We don't even realize that Joseph betrayed of all things by his brothers. But that was what God used to prepare him to save all of the Gentile world of its day, to see Egypt raised up into the superpower that would, Moses would have to deliver the people from, and to be a restorer to all of the nation of Israel. And that took a betrayal for that to happen? Are there things you're fighting God for right now? And I ask you that he's actually using to prepare you. I start to wonder, my God, there are some pretty crazy things that have happened here. This guy, Ahalia, by the way, we read he'll be a gifted. Uh, he'll be gifted. He's appointed. Those are the terms we have. Look at verse 6. I've appointed him. It means I've put him in place. And it says also that in verse 6, I've put wisdom in his heart, so I've appointed it. And then it says after all of that, by the way, that I've commanded him to make this stuff. And I get the idea that this is your structure guy. That's who he is. He's going to have to build these things. Now, ultimately, here is your, your foreman, but this is the guy who does the building, and then this guy makes it pretty. Do you get that? The first guy goes, look at this is the guy I've trained in all manner of workmanship. And I go, huh, that's an interesting word that God uses for art. Or is it? until you get to the book of Ephesians. Because in the book of Ephesians, we read the last time the word workmanship is used. And we read in 2.10, we are his workmanship. 
The word in the Greek is poema, from which we get poem from. But I don't know if you've ever realized what's really being said there. Where's masterpiece? God spoke the heavens into existence with a handful of words, but has been shaping you from the moment you said yes. Think about that. And even before. I mean, think about the amount of time God has spent on you compared to anything else ever that has ever existed in the universe. You are His masterpiece. And can I just say, God has set us up for a guy that means shadow of God because the real God makes things beautiful. Like you. Now, here's the thing. God dwells from the eternal perspective and He sees the inside. Right? Man looks at the outer appearance. Now, some of you, you may be getting a little older. Most of you are younger than me. That's something to be said. But, but consider that you might go, well, I don't I feel like I'm getting prettier. It's because God looks at the inside, <laughs> where Jesus dwells, by the way. And here's the point, beloved, that there is, a, there is within every work that God wants to do, there are going to be both for this to function well. The problem is each one of them has a challenge. Let me tell you what the challenge is. If you look at it, it's interesting because he takes us back to their original tribes. And I think there's a reason for it. With the first guy, does anyone remember what tribe this guy is from? Excellent. He's from the tribe of Judah. Does anyone remember what the name Judah means? It means praise. Does anyone remember what the tribe this guy is from? Dan. Excellent. Does anyone know what the name Dan means? It means judgment. I kind of get the idea. And maybe it's just from living a little bit of life. But when you look at the artist, the danger for the artist often can be to make sure that the praise gets taken to God. I mean, you watch a guy and he's been a performer his whole life and then he gets saved and someone wants to make an album with him tomorrow. And all of a sudden the guy's like, he has no idea who God is yet. He's still figuring this whole thing out and who he is in him. He has no time to really let this thing be reconciled to him at all. And then it's like he forgets that, well, the praise belongs to the Lord. And that becomes a challenge for the person who's the visionary, the creative type. You know, the one who's always dreaming things up. It's that they really make sure that everything gets laid back at the feet of God. And I'm not doing this for the praise of man. I know that I have the praise of God, and that's good enough for me. But then they have the other person, the structure guy. You know, the one, by the way, that got a little nervous because we started five minutes late. I mean, the other people could care. They were like, what time? I don't know what you're talking about, right? But there are some people that are like, no, wait a minute. What, what, what's up with that? I need that done. But the structure individual, interesting, because the big issue for a person like that might be that they need to make sure that they take the judgment to God too. Because often what can happen is you get so busy in your structure that when someone doesn't fit into it, they're not part of your group anymore. And that separates, that separates denominations, that separates Christians, which to me I think is hellacious. Hey, if somebody wants to swing from the rafters and, and, and yell, but they love the Lord and they seek to try to do it somehow within Scripture, praise God there are churches for that. I really appreciate there are churches for that because we drive them mental because we wouldn't do that here. We'd tell you, get off the rafters. This is in our building. Now, on, on the other side of it, you know, on the other side of it, if you're, you know, it's like praise God that there are churches that are out there that are doing that. I appreciate that. And to be honest, I will say this. There are people that are there that want to give God everything. And they are, they are all out about it. I think there's something to be grabbed from that. On the other side of it, there are those that would make sure that like, we're not going to listen to a guy unless he wears a robe. Now, I don't know about you. I'm not going to wear a robe because I think that's a little weird for me. But that's, but, but that's just me. That's just not where I come from. But, you know, to be honest, someone that, came to, to that, that likes that sees me in flip-flops and goes out running or sees me in a hat, I understand, praise God, there's a place for that. What's interesting is, for the very, very mild, we could be accused of being charismatic. And for the very, very charismatic, we could be accused of being very, very mild. Nobody knows where to put us. Because I think there's just enough of both of us, both of these in our fellowship. But the bottom line is, is that God is this. He's both, if you think about it. And that's the crazy thing. Because we have a God who speaks everything that exists. And think about the fact that he invented your mouth and then he invented food. They invented your eyes and he invented color. They invented your ears and he invented song. My God knows how to make beautiful things. But he also put a structure out. And that structure says that if we are guilty of breaking one of his laws, we stand guilty as a lawbreaker before him. And it only takes one. And that must be then the punishment because there must be punishment that's occurred, but the wages of sin is death. And if that's the case, well then death must happen. But my God, being so creative, is able to take a step and say, but 
If there was someone completely innocent willing to stand in your stead, they could take your place. Which is why I can't take your place, because I'm not innocent in and of myself. The only one that qualifies is Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is not only able, but is also willing, who steps in your place and says, if that's the punishment for you and for you and for you and for you, well, then I'll take it. And thus takes that punishment and dies on a cross so that all of our sin could be laid there and then raises from the dead to prove it was enough and to offer us new life. And so, I don't know if you've accepted that gift, but I'm going to give you a chance to here in just a moment. I'd like you to consider this. At the end of that, then we say yes to Jesus. And when we do say yes to Jesus, then we start to think, well, there we go. I surrendered myself to the great creator. Well, let me just remind you, he's also the God of structure. He's also the one that fundamentally wants you to know that there's still a standard he wants to hold. You are not free to sin. You are now free to serve. That's what the Bible says. Now that you've been set free, do not use that as an opportunity for sin, but rather through love serve one another. That's what God says. Interesting, because what He told us, remember in John 15, is that the Father would be glorified if we would bear much fruit. And I look at these two characters and I get the idea for this to be fully fruitful, both of these characters are going to be fully functioning. We got one guy that's like, I can see it. Let's make this beautiful and let's carve this and we're going to put stones in this. And you got another guy that goes, no, look at it. But we need to make sure that that table stands. He's like, sure. Well, you work on the standing part. I'll work on making it nice. And what's cool is when both appreciate each other. They go, praise God for the structured people because the structured people get it done. Praise God for the visionaries because there would be nothing to get done. Well, <laughs> when we look at this now, get the idea that when we get to that John 15 text, he says, but you're going to have to bear, you're going to have to remain with me. I'm the true vine. You're just a branch. But notice he doesn't use the word just. You can't bear fruit without me. And it makes sense that this is the time where he reasserts the necessity of the rest of the chapter. Look at it with me. After these two guys are going to do their jobs, he says, verse 12, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you should keep. And I get it. I realize that the moment God gives you a task, the moment God gives you a purpose, lays a calling on your life, some of you, if you're anything like me, that's all I need, and I'm off to the races. And there's a danger in that, beloved. And the danger is that if that's who we are, God says, don't forget, this is to be done with me, not for me. And there's the danger. God's like, look, at this is what I want to do through you. I want to see your family saved. I want to see people built up. I want to plant a church through you. I want to encourage other people. I want to see a world revolutionized in Bakersfield or in Africa or in wherever it be. I'm going to send you to Portugal. I'm going to watch people get healed, transformed. And you're like, awesome, God. I'll be back in a week to report. And God goes, no, 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 you're missing the point. This is not what I want you to do for me. This is what I want to do through you. And now that I've given you this commission, strangely enough, the first thing I challenge you to do is rest with me because we have a God who likes to rest with us. And it isn't because he gets tired, because I think if he got tired of anything, it would be chasing us. But the only place where you can really hang with us is a time when we're not busy trying to do stuff for him. Let me ask you, are you exhausted today? I mean, just tired of life exhausted. I'm not, tired. I'm not talking about, man, I could probably use a little bit more sleep, although I think that there's something to be said with that. But where it's like, I'm just, I feel like everything is an obligation now and not an opportunity. When was the last time you just rested with the Lord? When was the last time you went on a date with God? Does that sound weird? It doesn't to me. One day a week, I get a three and a half hour walk with God. And I walk through streets, different places each time, almost every time. I just walk with Him. Just talk to me. Let my heart hear you. I want to know you better. I, don't, I, mean, I want to read your word, but I want your word to be something that I'm like, yeah, that's the God I know. And not just intellectually, I have a stats. 
I'm not one of those kind of people who feels awkward eating by myself because I don't feel like I ever do, but I don't sit, you know. It isn't like, oh, no, no, leave that plate. How's it going, Lord? I mean, I try not to do that because it freaks people out. Although I've tried that before. That's how I know. But I do like to ask a waiter or a waitress, by the way, I just want you to know, I am in love with Jesus Christ and I'm going to be praying as I, as I get my food. Is there anything I could be praying for for you? Try it sometime. See what happens. You'd be amazed. A girl sits down across and says, I just had an abortion. I kid you not. Another, my father's dying of cancer. I'm not a real religious person, but if you're willing to pray. You know what? Do you have a moment? Can I just pray for you right now? Remember those things where you're... I mean, tell me if this makes any sense. Have you ever done anything and in the middle of doing anything, doing whatever it was, you could just feel God's pleasure? Have you have that? You're like, I just know what I'm doing right now really pleases him. Let me take a step beyond that. Have you ever not done something and felt his pleasure? That's a little harder. Could you imagine me taking a day, spending it with my wife and children, and then going, I just got nothing done today. Wouldn't that be insulting? When the one thing they need more than anything is just to have a dad around, have a husband around. God didn't die for us to do stuff for him. God died to be with us because he'd rather die than live without us. Now here's the interesting thing. By the time we get to Hebrews 4, God says that when God told Moses they would, enter his, they would not enter his rest because the rest was still to come. And the Jewish populace would say, well, that's Joshua. He brought him in. But the problem is, God after that would say, they still haven't ended my rest. That's Shabbat. Sabbath. Then he says, because when you finish the work, you cease to work. You rest. He says, Jesus is our Sabbath. When people say, you need to keep the Sabbath, and I say, absolutely, Jesus is my Sabbath. Because of Jesus, I have finished working for God, and I rest in his grace. And now everything that's done, he does through me. Hallelujah. He says, well, listen to this strange thing. God says, do you realize how important this is to him? Do you realize it says this is a matter of life or death? Did you notice twice in this text he said, if you don't, I'm going to kill you or you should die? And if you think, wow, hey, you know what? Hey, let's go out and do something on a Saturday. Boom! And then you're just dead. It's like, hello? Hello? Jimmy? Jimmy? Where's Jimmy? I'm sorry. Imagine. Now, maybe that doesn't happen, and probably we're thankful for that, but let me ask you. You ever have times where you feel like you're spiritually decaying? You're spiritually dying? Interesting, because remember what Jesus said back in John 15? He said, whoever doesn't stay attached withers. Isn't that the same thing? You ever have a time where you're like, man, I was so in love with God, and then I feel like I'm, I'm withering. You can stay attached to church all day and not thrive. You can stay attached to a prayer meeting and not thrive. You can read your Bible until you feel like you've memorized Leviticus and not thrive. Because those things can be beneficial, but clinging to Christ is the thing from which all those other things have purpose. It would be like memorizing a manual for a Jeep, but not owning one or ever working on one. So maybe you could get on a chat room and talk about how you know Jeeps, but if you don't own one, it seems like silly information. And you could read Scripture and so that you could argue with other people, but if you don't know the God of that book, there's no thriving because God is life. Jesus is the, the one who gives us eternal life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He told us He's the resurrection and the life. He is very serious about that. Beloved, please hear me as we bring this around to close and pray. This thing started by saying, I've called and ordained people. I've commissioned them and I've filled them with my spirit so that they could do the work I've called them to. And that work was to build a place where I could dwell. Strange, because Peter was the one who said that we, one of those guys who will hear from Jesus, will say, look at we like living stones are being built up to that holy dwelling place of God. 
within this holy dwelling place. God's building you up as stones. And he tells us, by the way, every one of you need to be workmen. And I know that because it says that we are supposed to be doing that which stirs up to edify one another. And the word edify is to, be, to build up. The word oikodoma so literally means to put a dome on your house. Every one of us is supposed to be. But Paul would say, I, like a master builder, laid the foundation. And now be careful how you build. Others build, build upon it. Can I say, I get the blessing of investing in you for whatever time that is, whether that be a day or whether that be for years. I love the fact that I get to do this, but please hear me. You've got to be careful how you build in this. But God is going to raise you up to be a part of this building team. I want you to know that. Wherever you are going to be, if you belong to Jesus, you're going to be a builder. So be careful how you build. And maybe you are a Bezalel. Maybe you're somebody that just wants to live in the shadow of God and I just want to represent. And I, man, I've got vision about what that is. But I'm going to tell you what, man, let that be the case. But let all the praise be given to God. And as the praise is given to God, let God use you to make things beautiful, to make people beautiful. As you invest in them and you watch what happens as they start to grow. But then they're going to be, and by the way, that guy, he says, that guy's formatting. And don't you find it interesting that that was the foreman and not the other? Because if it's the other guy, it'll be all about structure. But sometimes you can structure things until no one can live there. But on the other side of it, man, i got to tell you, if you're the kind that God's called to you, man, and you're about structure, then do it. But do it well and serve joyfully. And as you do, make sure that the judgment gets handed over to God. Don't go, well, that person's not working like I am. Because in the end of it, maybe he just happens to be a Bezalel and you're a Holiab. But man, when both work together, something beautiful happens. Because within those structures, and that guy's going to be teaching too, and those structures become forms and formats that help other people share the gospel because all of a sudden they're like, hey, let's try this. Now, the, the person over here on this side, this person's just like, hey, I'm just going to go out and I'm winging it. On this person, it's like, no, no, I need something. I've I got to have something. Okay, well, here's four spiritual laws, or here's a way of the master, or here's the, you know, and it, here's the alpha course, and you're going, and this person over here going, oh, what's that? And what it is, is it's something that other people raise up and use for that glory and hallelujah. That's what I say. Because in the end of it all, both sides need to be out there building. But here's the great part, just build the part God's called you to. And as it's the case, he raises, he goes, now that you know that I'm calling you, you I'm calling, and you I'm calling, and you I'm calling, please don't forget to rest. Because it'll kill you if you don't. Because you could be so busy now going, I'm working for God, that people look and go, why would I want that? God's looking to hire? I've never thought of being a pastor as a job. It's just who I am. Just as much as a dad, as a man, that's just who I am. I'll irritate you if you don't want a pastor around and I'm around. Because no matter where I'm at, whether we're playing basketball, or we're playing board games, or we're out doing something else, or we're eating... You can expect me. Just, that's just who I am. And here's the point of it. It's like <clears throat> that resting in the Lord and it's just who you are and all that makes this thing so beautiful. It becomes just who you are. It isn't just, okay, here's the point where I build on somebody. Here's the point where I don't. And you're just about it. So please hear me as we go to prayer. For the Bezalels in the room, those that God has called to be visionaries and are wildly and fantastically artistic, oh, be about it. But be about it in a way that God gets all the praise. If you're the kind that's the kind that builds structure, there's room for you too. And as God has called you out there to do it, be about it. But do it well. Do it joyfully and make sure the judgment gets handed over to God, not to you. And as you're both called to it, remember you're building a dwelling place where God is seated. Not just where people get together and sit in a pew. And with that then God says, now that we know what we're going to do, let's rest. Let's be together. There's a God who spoke everything into existence and then made you and then took a day off. Think about what that means. As we go to prayer, beloved, let me ask you, where are you at with resting in him right now? Are you trying to earn a love that he wants to give you freely? Are you delighting in a God who delights in you? Or are you just about business because somehow you think that'll keep him happy? Well, I want to pray for you. But lastly, if you've not accepted the gift of this Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you and rose again, I'd love the honor of giving you that opportunity today. Look, you're at church. You'd say, well, this is God's house, but you can, ha you can walk in and walk out of this place and be unchanged. That's your choice. But there's a God who's here to transform you. And that God who created you artistically and beautifully also set a structure in order, and that structure demands that the price be paid for your sin, and you can choose your sacrifice today. 
Ultimately, you either choose yourself as a sacrifice, it'll be a sorry one, or choose Jesus who's paid the price for you. But if you do, he is willing to forgive you, to cleanse you, transform you, and make you a new creation. But that's the choice you need to make. Will you pray with me, please? God, I thank you so much for this scripture. I thank you for the beauty of this text. I thank you, Lord, for how you've showed us how you are the the bread of life and how you've led us to the table of showbread and how you've showed us you are the light of the world and you've led us to the lampstand. And you've showed us you are the door to the sheep and you've shown us the tent with the door. You've showed us you are the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep and and you've shown us that altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. You've showed us that you're the resurrection and the life and you've showed us how you call priests and you you cleanse them and you consecrate them that they would live a resurrected life, a new life, a clean life. You showed us how you were the way, the truth, and the life. And you showed us the life of prayer and incense and the life of redemption and the life of cleanliness and, and, and purity and the labor, that way and that truth and the life. And you showed us you're the true vine and you've showed us the necessity in your calling to rest in you. I pray for those, Lord, who, as you told us here, that you stirred hearts. These were hearts that you literally hearted up in that were welled up, that were stirred up. Lord, I pray for every person here who has said yes to you. Show them, Lord, there are no spectators in the kingdom of God. Your kingdom, God. Show them that every person that has said yes, you have a calling on, and it's not just to be saved. You are going to conform them into the image of your Son, and in doing so, you're going to raise them up to do the work you've called them to. But Lord, please remind us, you call you equip, you fortify, you commission, you place and you appoint. That's your job. Our job is to surrender and enjoy. May we enjoy the ride. And I pray, God, for every one of us in here that is that has said yes to you, Lord, that there will be a go for it in our spirit. There will be a willingness to follow, a willingness to say yes. God, please do that work now, I pray. But Lord, I pray that if there be any within the sound of this voice who have not said yes to you, that today would be the day of their salvation. And if that's you right now, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you want to say yes, I simply ask you to give a strong and a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let this prayer be my prayer. Let these words be my words. And here it is. God, I confess to you I'm a sinner. I confess to you that my sin has made me guilty before you. And I don't want to pay for my sin, although I know I should. I have the, uh, that's, that's what is the standard, the structure that is set. And yet, you love me. And in your infinite love for me, you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for my sins. And He died and rose again. And so I say yes to Jesus' gift, His payment for my sins, confessing Him as my Savior and my Lord surrender my life to you. And I say, have me now. I'm playing your hands. Shape me and mold me. Trim me and and prune me whatever way you want so that I would bear forth that fruit as I seek to remain in you now. Thank you for wanting me. I am yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.